Hello, and welcome to the BPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Clayton Howard. So Clayton Howard uh, earned his PhD from the University of Michigan in 2010, and he is a specialist in post-war U.S. history. His research interests include the histories of American cities, suburbs, gender, sexuality, and politics. Before coming to Ohio State, he taught at the University of New Hampshire and the College of the Holy Cross. So thank you, Clay, for being on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. So Clay is here tonight um, to talk about the Stonewall riots and how that affected the gay rights movement. So this June marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riot that marked the birth of the modern LGBT rights movement. It is also the fourth anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark decision on same-sex marriage, Obergefell v. Hodges. So, Clay, can you give us uh, an overview of what happened in June 1969 at the Stonewall Inn and on the days following on Christopher Street and Christopher Park? Yeah, sure. Um, and I'll, I'll try and give a kind of general general overview rather than like a play-by-play. Sure. Um, I think it, the context is kind of important, and that is, you know, in the 50s and 1960s, um, people who were attracted to others of the same sex, people who were gender variant, what we would now call maybe trans or... Um, intersex, um, face a whole lot of uh, problems and difficulties, right? You could lose your job, um, that there were like investigations of, of gay teachers in places like New York and Ohio and California. Um, and although it wasn't technically illegal um, to be attracted to someone of the same sex, it was illegal to, to act on it. And so um, there were a lot of restrictions in public spaces around um, two men or two women um, touching one another, kissing, holding hands, et cetera. And that applied a lot to bars. Um, and in particular, there was a, a no dancing rule. So there were lots of gay bars in places like New York City in, in the 1960s. And the Stonewall Inn was... Um, like, you know, kind of like a, a dive bar in Greenwich Village that attracted um, like college students from as far away as Columbia, as well as um, sex workers, um, trans people who were living in the area. So it, it kind of drew a wide range of people. And in part because it was like such a dive bar, it, it tolerated dancing in spite of the risks. Um, separate from the like rules governing um, dancing or like same-sex relationships, the police often raided these bars, um, not just for, to enforce the law, but actually often to, to get payoffs. So in June 1969, what would become the Stonewall Riot begins with one of those raids and uh, a demand for payoffs from people in, in the bar. And in this case, people in the bar um, literally physically fought back and so on the first night, there was a fighting between patrons and the police um, that spilled out into the street that involved the, the paddy wagon and eventually like the police actually sort of like left the scene. And then there was a second night where the bar reopened with shattered windows and kind of broken chairs and so forth and invited people to come back. And 
a much larger crowd of people gathered from, from around the city, maybe particularly in the neighborhood. And when the police tried to break it up, a second, a second confrontation happened that was even bigger than the first one. So that's like, that's the general overview of what we call the, the riot, those two days of fighting between the police and uh, bar patrons. It's after the riot happens that a number of activists in particular, people, people who were like active in the anti-war movement, who were active in feminism, um, they see it as a, a kind of turning point and like they're not alone. Like a lot of people who were involved also saw it as a turning point. And so they, they began to um, organize politically and to demand kind of more assertive gay rights organizations. Um, and I don't know the exact timing of it, but not long after that, um, maybe like a year later, there's like a march um, from where the Stonewall Inn was to Central Park that becomes the first um, Pride March or like the precursor to the Pride March. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, so it sounds like, and you, you touched on this a bit towards the end of, of your response, but in what ways did, did the Stonewall riots galvanize the, the gay rights movements? Yeah. No, I mean, it's an interesting question because, you know, um, like historians actually even debate about this because in, in a, like it's a, it's a moment that has enormous symbolic importance, but you could also think of it as one confrontation between gay bar, trans bar patrons and the police in one city at one moment. And there are mm. other moments of confrontations, maybe that aren't quite that big. Um, I did a lot of research on San Francisco and people in San Francisco, you know, the other side of the, you know, the continent were, um, a lot less invested in what was happening at Stonewall. They had their kind of own story going on. But in, in the 70s in particular, Stonewall takes on a, a kind of symbolic importance mm -hmm. that, um, that unites people across the country. Okay, I see. One of the things that I learned actually um, while you know, looking into these events you know, in preparation for the podcast um, was the role of the mafia in, in the gay bars and the gay bar scene in New York City yeah. um, in this era. Can you talk a little bit about their involvements? So I don't know a ton about it, but what I do know is that um, because these bars were often illicit, um, the people who were willing to own and run them were often um, involved in underground um, economies, which included the mafia. I know that, um, so a lot of times gay bar owners have to do payoffs to, um, to the mob. Uh, in New York. I think that was also true in Chicago, but I, it was not true in San Francisco and other cities. And to some degree in like a, in LGBTQ history, it's um, specifically a New York story, the mafia part. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that Stonewall Inn was certainly a, a dive bar and uh, it sounded like given that they're, you know, the mafia's involvement and it's certainly not being regulated by a governing body in the way that a lot of uh, you know, restaurants and bars these days, you would, you, you know, you would assume they have certain regulations and health codes and all that. But since it's sort of an illicit operation, yeah. So the the upkeep, you know, it sounded like it was really poor conditions inside of the bar. Yeah, I mean that's a big part of it, and I think the other kind of interesting piece of it is that, like, the police are enforcing the law, but they're also promoting different kinds of black markets. Like the police took payoffs from patrons and gay bars. This is also before the Knapp Commission investigated the NYPD and that 
um, you know, just a couple of years after this. I don't know. If you've seen the movie Serpico, you know what I'm talking about. It's a, a moment where the NYPD gets investigated for its corruption. And the, the piece, the gay bar piece is like just one small fragment of a much larger um, drug dealing, um, prostitution, racketeering, running police force um, that comes out in the early 70s. I see. I see. Yeah. So, it, it's, yeah, it sounds like a turning point in a number of ways um, uh, you know, for, uh, from many different angles yeah. um, in the city. So in, in March 2019, the University of Pennsylvania Press published your book, The Closet and the Cul-de-Sac, The Politics of Sexual Privacy in Northern California. So this book uses the history of the San Francisco Bay Area from World War II to the late 1970s to explain the origins and scope of the nation's culture wars over gay rights. So what would you say is the connection between this era in the Bay Area and the fight for gay rights in the U.S. at large? Yeah. So um, one big part of the book is the history of suburbanization. And I think it's important, you know, for, well, I guess historians, but like the public at large, to not just think about how LGBTQ people have a specific history, but how straight people as straight people, not just something implicitly understood to be normal, also have a history, which brought me to the history of the suburbs. And so after World War II, at the same time that you, you get these gay bars in places like New York City, you get um, government programs like the GI Bill that help particularly married people buy new houses in the suburbs. And, the, and the, uh, the GI Bill is actually the first federal legislation that, ex that explicitly excluded people for um, suspected homosexual conduct. So it's this combination of government policies and um, private discrimination in the real estate market that over the course of 20, 25, 30 years, you get really high concentrations of married people, particularly white married people with kids in the suburbs, and growing numbers of uh, unmarried people, which includes large numbers of LGBTQ people in older cities. So my book is, in a way, is trying to put the story of Stonewall in places like Stonewall within this like larger context where um, people are getting concentrated in different parts of the metropolitan region, and then they, they begin to organize politically accordingly. Wow. it's uh, It really it puts a lot of perspective on thinking about the movement of people and um, and how it was driven by policy and, and whatnot, directly supported by the government. Yeah. Um, well, I remember one, one of the first times someone mentioned to me, this was before same-sex marriage was legalized federally, um, they encouraged people that were maybe not in support of it or on the fence about it to consider it also not just from a social aspect, but from an economic aspect and how it you know, directly... Um, impact same-sex couples in terms of not having the same benefits that straight couples do. Um, you mean so someone brought up the fact that like marriage is a, a public and economic institution as well as a personal and religious one? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for putting it well, more I, succinctly. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I was. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I thought. I think I understood what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. That's that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. And uh, I had up to that point, I thought, oh wow, this is. Um, an excellent way to, I think, maybe maybe get more people on board that are not on board currently, at least get them to think about it from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so interesting you say that, and you might, be, you might be right. One thing that I have noticed 
is that a lot of the court decisions around same-sex marriage revolve around its public dimensions, you know, like inheritance taxes, like immigration status, Mm -hmm. like those kinds of things are things that people litigate in court. But if I think about the ways in which most straight identified people talk about same-sex marriage, it's the personal dimensions. And I don't just mean um, people who oppose same-sex marriage. Um, The people who like same-sex marriage, the straight people who like uh, same-sex marriage, Mm -hmm. often are very compelled by the argument that love is love and um, that, like, the government shouldn't stop you from, you know, marrying who you want. What's really interesting is that what we're talking about in the same-sex marriage debate is Mm -hmm. marriage licenses. That, in a sense, what same-sex marriage has done has broadened the number of people going to City Hall to get to get licenses, but the way that we talk about it is that it's often, um, that part is often erased. Yeah, but you're right, but like sometimes people are really drawn in by the visiting people in the hospital, like um, child custody cases, like that side of it, and then Mm -hmm. in other times I think people like, they like imagining that marriage is is free of government or the economy. Yes, yeah, and I I guess, you know, personally, um, I was never opposed to it in the first place, so maybe I was coming at it from like, oh, well, this is just another, thing that I didn't consider. Um, so maybe it didn't necessarily like change anyone's minds per se from that angle, but yeah, well, so it's it really eye opening. Yeah, no, it is. And also like your comment makes me, or reminds me that there's, um, you know, there's like a, a, a gay or queer critique of marriage that it's like, that it's like normalizing and it tries to fit everyone into like one box and doesn't mm-hmm. allow people to have the, um, diverse relationships or sexuality that they might otherwise have, which, which I think is true, but it's also like, I think the most compelling argument from that end for supporting same sex marriage, even if you do think it is, um, normalizing is that essentially like, how else are you going to get health insurance? Like how else are you going to visit your partner in the hospital, et cetera, without it? So, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess to some degree at this point, you know, it's the uh, institution, it's the society we live in. Um, yeah. You know, it's very prevalent. So, uh, yeah, very interesting to think about. So, you know, sort of switching gears a bit. Yeah, sure. So we're four years on now from the legalization of same-sex marriage, um, yet we're also under an administration that has enacted a ban on transgender people serving in the military, mm-hmm. among uh, other other things that have not exactly been in support of you know, LGBTQ rights. So what, what is your outlook on LGBTQ rights in the U.S. going forward? Um, you know, just this week I was thinking about, I was remembering just a couple of years ago when um, Barack Obama was still president, we were having a debate. I mean, I don't know if we were having this nationally, but I was familiar with people having this debate about whether or not we were living in a post-racial society. But by, by virtue of having um, an African-American president, um, you know, had we had we reached some sort of milestone where like race didn't matter anymore, and then I think that the 2016 election, um, President Trump's like roots in the in the birther movement and other things like that, really have mm-hmm. have really put those arguments to to rest for a lot of people. Right. Um, right. In some ways, I feel like the conversation around same sex marriage has a similar feel to it about like so the the court has ruled on it. Same sex marriage is the law. Of the of the land, mm-hmm. and even with President Trump president or as president, I think that there is like a certain complacency around around marriage. Um, 
And what's interesting actually about, I think the, the opposition to marriage is that they've like, they've almost made their peace with the court decision. And I don't just mean um, people like John Kasich, who um, at one of the Republican debates said that he was you know, fine with um, same-sex couples marrying. I also mean that even the people who are most opposed to it, their arguments are um, not about overturning same-sex marriage, although they probably would like that to happen. It's more about containing it. So these arguments about religious liberty are about, you know, if someone comes into my uh, place of worship, if someone comes into my business, what are my responsibilities and requirements under the law, rather than whether or not same-sex marriage itself is um, legal. Um, you know, and one of the weird things about um, like the era we're living in is that I, I wrote about um, gay Republicans, like the, their history, mm -hmm. And I know that um, the former executive director, a guy named Greg Angelo, um, pointed out that Donald Trump is the most LGBTQ-friendly Republican president ever, which, well, I mean, it's, it's, very, yeah. it's hard to imagine, but yeah. Well, I mean, but, what's, what's so weird about it is that President Trump wished us a happy Pride Month at the same time that his administration is banning trans people from the military. There's right. other things like um, taking down signs. Um, like under the Obama administration, there was a rule that um, like homeless shelters that got federal funding had to post signs that said, you know, we welcome people regard regardless of their gender identity or their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And those signs have kind of like disappeared. Um, so all this is happening all at once. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't have like some dramatic conclusion or takeaway about it, except to just say that it's, it, it is, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot there, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's not something I, I guess I considered, but um, yeah. I, I Which guess. part hadn't you considered? Oh, that Trump, you know, being the most gay-friendly Republican president, but. Well, there was a lot of hostility from a lot of other Republicans before that, so the bar is sure. high or it's, low, depending on how I guess you it's see it. Yeah, yeah, extremely relative, that's a good point. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, uh, we don't have to get too far into the, the politics of it, but no, cer sure. certainly there's some, um, you know, some lip service being paid while, as you said, um, on the same hand, actual policies against that very group of people um, being enacted. So, yeah, I mean, it's all it's all like really um, it's all really confusing. And something that I'm going to talk about in my talk later is. So the Stonewall Inn has been designated um, a national monument by the National Park Service and the Obama administration. And then uh, the Trump administration has issued a ruling about pride flags, like pride flag flags can't fly at like US embassies um, and other federal buildings. Mm -hmm. And in a way to sort of like duck this problem at the federal national monument of the Stonewall Inn, the, the Park Service kind of decided that the flagpole on which the pride flag at the Stonewall Inn flies belongs to the city of New York and not the federal government. And so I don't, I don't exactly know what to make of that, but there's a, it seems like there's a metaphor there where it's like there's a, a kind of shifting of things and moving around and redefining them in a way that allows the pride flag to still fly at the same time that the federal government is sort of denying its, its connection to it. Yeah, you're right. That's a very strange, specific sort of 
delineation that, yeah. Right. I, probably, yeah, it does have some sort of symbolic uh, meaning in terms of being recognized on one hand, but also still not getting equal treatment on the other hand. Yeah, right. I mean, a, a, weird, a weird detail. I mean, of all the things that are happening right now right. politically, the, this debate about the flag is probably pretty small, but um, it seems sort of symbolically relevant, if right. nothing else. Right. I, yes, I agree. Uh, well, Clay, I think we're running a bit short of time. Sure. Um, so, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And um, for, our, for our listeners of this podcast, we will also be recording Clay's program tonight. So uh, his entire lecture will also be available if you'd like to listen to that. And again, thank you to Clayton Howard for joining us on the podcast. Um, I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and have a good evening. Thank you. Thank you.